friends, I'm Sabrina, the rookie around here. John and Dick are the old school American fans of F1. Thanks for taking time to listen in on a conversation the guys and I had about the F1 calendar. I knew that longtime fans like John and Dick have strong opinions about the calendar. They didn't disappoint. As you'll hear, it's a traveling circus that covers the globe. Hope you enjoy our conversation. John, Dick, both of you have watched Grand Prix for years. What do you think about this year's calendar, its length? Do you think there's pros to it, cons to it? Why? I'm going to have you go first, John. Well, I thought it was too long to begin with, but then they canceled China, so I'm now a little uh, agnostic about it. Wow. I'm a little sensitive about the length of the calendar, just generally the number of races, simply because I've been around enough series to see the demand that it takes on the team not so much on the drivers although that's pretty tough but the team you know they get very very little time and it's it's very very hard on them so i'm not i'm not a big fan of the you know 20 or so races uh, i i think they got to keep it relatively short wow so how much shorter would you like it to be i think 17 18 races is plenty wow that is like for many people i think probably the uh minority opinion it seems like men- most people want to would want it every week if they could well there's a rationale there too <laughs> right <laughs> The rationale would be that you would it's it's so expensive to put one on um, 25 million or so, probably U.S. to put one on um, just for Mm -hmm. the sanctioning fee. So you could if you'd capped it at, say, 18 to 20 races a year, you could alternate uh, some of the venues so that you could actually increase the venues without killing the teams, uh, you know, families and the team workers and, and drivers and spread the sport yeah. further afield without, without um, you know, overdoing it. Okay. That's so, so you're saying like concentrate it into specific places that have really shown their, their quote value as to a racing circuit and what it brings to the table for the for the calendar. Well, there there are certain courses that I would keep as traditional courses like Monaco, Monza, you know, Spa, places like that. But then on the alternating calendar, I would put places like Vietnam, India, South Africa, even uh, say Canada, Mexico, maybe even America. Although I just don't think that's the right thing to do it, but. But certainly some of the Saudi Arabia, do we really need two races a year in, in the sand, sand pits? Um, you know, so that's that would be my suggestion if anybody asked. <laughs> OK, I'm, I got more follow ups, but I want to give Dick the opportunity to join in on this because I don't know if he's going to join you or if he's going to be the prevailing majority opinion. I get the sense that the F1 world has. <laughs> so. You know, okay, so I hear exactly what John says, and certainly having run a racing team myself, uh, man, when you have even races every two weeks, it's a lot. And those were, you know, regional kind of programs that I was involved in. And so 
it does take a toll on the teams, even though the teams are better equipped and they they have logistics and all that. I mean, it, it's one of the things that I always say is, is that everybody talks about, you know, the, the technology and having the best crew and drivers and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's really like the old saying, you know, an army travels on its stomach, right? And and mm-hmm. logistics is a huge deal in any form of motorsport because it's a traveling circus. And, um, and so there's a lot that goes into that and you have to figure out the logistics and, you know, swap out team members who are, you know, who've been traveling a bunch and let them stay home and work at the factory or something like that. Um, you know, having the rotating races, I think as a, if I were to be a race promoter, I would say, well, how do I build data equity if I know that I'm only going to get a race once every two or three years, right? That's the other side to that. I don't disagree with John's idea. I think it's a good idea, but I think you get pushback from the promoters because of the data equity thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you look at, you look at another series like a NASCAR, well, shoot, those guys, they run, 32 races a year and they're pretty much every single weekend starting in mid mid uh, February and they'll skip Easter and they'll skip maybe Mother's Day but I mean other than that I mean it's every weekend now they don't have the travel uh you know all the way around the world it's just you know you know largely in the southeastern United States not completely but it's still it's a grind man and um and they do that by swapping out team members. I'll just add one uh, one final thing, and that is is that if you think about the current F1 grid, just the drivers, okay, I can only come up with two of them that are actually married, you know, have a family. The rest of them, they're all single. There's a reason for that, you know, and um, and so I think, I mean, part of it is is that you know, I mean, some of these guys are, you know. 21 years old or whatever, and probably have no business being married. But the other side of it is, you know, 10% of the 10% of the grids married. (laughs) It's a really low number. So, and the travel certainly inhibits that kind of thing. So, you know, if you're, if you're married with kids, Formula One's probably not the place to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even if we look outside of the drivers to the rest of the paddock, how many of those people are married and have those responsibilities that they're trying to juggle, which leads me to a a different conversation. I can't remember her last name, but she's now a new contributor to Sky Sports, Bernie, somebody. She was strategist on Aston Martin, and she was talking about one of the Mm -hmm. reasons for why she decided to step away from being a part of a team and going into the commentary world and the the toll, as you guys are pointing to, and she wasn't the driver. Um, So I do, I can see Mm -hmm. that. Okay, so let we can come back a little bit to the circuits and which ones we would, um, or the toll that this takes and the calendar length. But you guys already said, I think it was John, you said you would keep something like Monaco, Monza, Spot. I'm getting the sense that those are your favorites. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but for both of you, which are your favorite circuits? And I'm going to go to, actually, I'm going to go to Dick. You go first. Tell us your favorite top five. Um, top five. Okay, Spa. Um, because Eau Rouge is just mm-hmm. crazy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Monza because the fans are insane. Um, Silverstone because of tradition. Um, hmm. Think Suzuka because of Senna's qualifying lap there in like 1988, 1989. Um, and maybe like Singapore. Monaco doesn't make my list because you can't pass. <laughs> now, I love, I love the watch qualifying at Monaco because that's a bull in a china closet going around that track. And it is absolutely dramatic as a race. Eh, not so much. Whoever gets in the lead pretty much controls the race. What about you, John? Uh, my list would go um, Monaco for reasons that I'll I'll get into. Um, Monza because of of uh, the uh, what's the name of the big curve uh, double apex uh, humongous curve Curva Grande. Or oh, something. curve. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Spa, certainly for exactly the same reason. Eau Rouge is just fantastic. Uh, I miss I miss the Nordischleif uh, in Austria, but uh, that was that one's gone. Uh, I actually rate Coda very high uh, simply because mm. it is one of the very best places uh, to watch a Grand Prix. Um, yeah. But Monaco, I, I would I would go back on that one and say it, it is a it is a lousy place for the lousy place for the race. Um, the problem is, you know, you can't pass. That's true. Qualifying is just magic. The other thing about Monaco yep. is. It's it's just everything that Formula One really ought to be. If you go there. You just cannot help but be impressed with everything, the sights, the sound, the colors, the people, the cars, and then there's the race cars, and everything is just magical there. Uh, and uh, the year I was there was the, the 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 wettest year, and when Senna and Prost were battling and X through the flag in favor of, of Prost, uh, early, so it was controversy as well. Wow. Uh, there always seems to be controversy there. Think about Checo. Think about mm-hmm. Schumacher. There's, you know, there's just all kinds of things. Uh, but, but after the race, you know, it's an, it's one of the only places where you can get in a tour bus or a street bus after the race and drive around the course. Uh, right. Immediately after the race, and then you know the 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 the. Um, Principality of Monaco is really a pretty small place, and mm-hmm. but at the end of race weekend, I mean, there's like a million people crowding into the train station trying to get out of there, and it's they're just it's just magical. But but uh, Spa, Monza, you know, all of those are really historic. But uh, but Coda is one of the very best tracks and the best facilities for watching a race. Well, I'm a little excited about that one because it's our home state. And I think that it's everything last year, especially I loved watching the race. It was, I think the weather, the, the inclines watching all of that was wonderful. But let me ask you this question. You just said one on your list, John, that's not on the current calendar. 
tell us about that. Why, why is that one that's no longer on? Why is it no longer on the calendar from your opinion? And then why did you love it so much? It's, it's, it's old. It's, it's still open and people can drive around it, but uh, it's the, it's the track where Nicky Lauda almost uh, lost his mm-hmm. life. Um, it's the track where Tom Price did lose his life. Um it's it's 14 something miles long um and it has jumps i mean a formula one car in the 60s and 70s would go over the hill and be airborne all four wheels off the ground um so it was spectacular racing the other thing about it which is still true of austria uh the race there germany uh, i'm sorry germany yeah the the red the weather is so changeable because you're in the forest there and it just creates all kinds of drama through at almost every race simply because of the weather changes and the drivers have to adapt. And they, you get into a situation where the driver really makes the difference because the car is set up one way. And if the weather changes, you can't change the setup once it's, once it's, you're on track. Interesting. That is very interesting because, um, and why is it no longer on the schedule? Too long, too dangerous, too old. Do you think that could ever change? Could it ever come back? No way. No. Not in the it's too hard to marshal. Yeah. Say that again, Dick? Yeah. Well, it's too long to marshal and and protect adequately. You know, I mean, it's because I think it's 14 miles long and 200 corners or thereabouts. Um, Did you say so, 200 like John said, I mean... I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, there there were guys like well, like a Jackie Eeks who was known as a ringmeister, right? He just knew that place like he could drive it with his eyes closed practically, and they had massive advantages because it it was just so much, um, and yeah, I mean, it was it was just an amazing magical place, but it's so dangerous. I mean. You know, it, it's still open. Like you can go and take your rental car, you know, fly over to Germany, Germany, rent a car and go drive, you know, the the north circuit of the Nürburgring. And it's just sort of like people kill themselves there every year. You know, it's just crazy. I need to go drive that place, by the way. <laughs> I'll go with you, Dick. I know. Right. Okay. So then let's look at it the other side. Then the calendar has uh circuits that are on i i don't think any this year are new right everything is a repeat from Mm, previous years okay so on that sense are there any that you're not impressed with or when you think about what used to have been and now we've increased it to such a volume they're like really this is we're putting people through this john well this will this will get into a bias that i have um (laughs) And I know the reason that we have the the paved runoff surfaces, the only one that I really like is Paul Ricard in France. And the reason I like it is because they changed the texture of the runoff area so that it is uh, it, the further off you get, the worse it is on your car. But I liked gravel traps. Uh, I I just feel like the drivers now have less incentive to be precise 
not mm-hmm. saying they're not precise, but they have less incentive to be precise because the the cost of going outside the artificially uh, delineated boundaries of the track cost them nothing except their lap time. Mm-hmm. Whereas in previous track constructions, uh, gravel traps ended your race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yep. interesting. That's well, and I was listening to an interview with Jackie Stewart and he was just talking about during his era and how many people would die mm-hmm. at races. And I started to think how that's such a different perspective. And he, he was talking about the emotional distance that he had in the process of just racing and knowing that someone may have died and he continues the race. So when I hear you say the gravel trap gave an incentive to actually stay within, it seems like that's just another variation of that, of different eras creating different incentives. And it also affects the way a driving style, not saying that the drivers today aren't doing a really good job. And, but that's, I think that's an interesting thing about the Paul Ricard and the paved off surface. Is there anybody else that has that? Not to my you're, knowledge. Not that you okay. What about you, Dick? Do you have any circuits that you're like, oh, I'm not impressed with this. I don't think it's worth us doing. Hmm. I used to kind of think that the track um at Jeddah in Saudi Arabia um was a bit too much, but now they've they've made some changes to it so that it's still spectacularly fast, but you're not necessarily, you know, if you go off the road just a foot, you might be able to bring it back on. Whereas before, and I think, John, you know what I'm talking about. It's sort of like it, it, it was like a little bit of like running at Indianapolis where, you know, there is no runoff. It's either track, you know, prepared track surface or wall. And, um, and, you know, that's, that gets expensive really quick. Um, and, you know, certainly we saw it with Mick Schumacher uh, last year. I mean, he watered the car, put himself in the hospital. And, you know, I think the car was a complete write-off, you know, and he had just made a very small uh, error. So on the one hand, I like the fact that it's unforgiving, but on the other hand, I don't like the fact that it's un- unforgiving. So I always kind of felt that way, but I, I've kind of reassessed my my feelings about about that particular track. Yeah. Well, oh, if, go ahead. If I could just insert two things. One is, uh, yeah, I agree. And part of that is the uh, lining of the track with the barriers. And it's it's largely blind, especially that one section. And I don't like that because you can have an accident and and everybody Mm -hmm. piles in there and nobody knows. And that's dangerous. I don't like that. I drove uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, and in between the the barriers like that. And it's really um, unnerving because you just don't have any visibility. Uh, The other track that I would put back on the circuit, uh, Sabrina, just to reinsert this because it came back to mind, is Mm -hmm. Mossport. Uh, Mossport was a fantastic track, as was Watkins. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Tell me yes. a little bit about that. About Mossport? Mm-hmm. 
Mossport uh, is an incredible track. It's in Canada, near, in between Montreal and Quebec. Um, it's, I don't remember exactly how long it is. Uh, I drove it in the 80s. Um, it's where Stefan Beloff um, uh, crashed and died, but there's a, the, the second turn is actually flat out blind. So you, you cross over the hilltop and you have to be committed to your left-hand turn to the apex of that turn, which is way down the hill and away from you. Oh, and, my. and then you go through the, the back part of the track uh, and you go through this dip and at 100, and we were only doing 140. I can only imagine what it'd be in an F1 car. Only the, com- the compression going through that, that uh, dip in the track as you head back uphill. And then you go into a, a hairpin and you, it's a first gear turn. So you go from flat out, full compression up into a braking area and then a quick right hand down into first gear from top. And it's just, uh, it's it's a spectacular track. Not very great for watching, but a really incredible driver's track. Okay, that leads me to my next question. Yep. Cause when I'm looking at these circuits, I wonder what perspectives are being weighted in determining whether or not a circuit gets to sit um in the calendar is it does a drive do the drivers get to have an opinion do the teams is it all being decided by the fia formula one is it this is it all maybe the financial and how much money you contribute and that gets you the seat on the or the spot on the calendar you guys tell me i'll leave it open you guys decide who wants to take that i think dick wants to well i'll go first (laughs) Yeah, I, I think I think who can stroke the check um, goes a long way. Um, I think they have to prove that you know that the logistics, you know, getting them in and out of the circuit, um, and I don't mean just you know like from the hotel to the racetrack. Although I think that that is does play into it a little bit, but it's more like getting you know literally airplanes full of cars and equipment and, you know, pit boxes and all that stuff that is required for these flyaway races. I think that they've got to come up with um, some very good hard evidence that, hey, we can support the the circuit coming in and out. And then then is it a a country where the teams feel like they have interest from their sponsors in being like, you know, normally you have one race per country, yet the United States has three. Why? Well, because the United States is a hugely important market for almost any sponsor that's, you know, on a Formula One race car. So they want the opportunity to um, be able to, wine and dine uh their most prized you know clients or customers uh or prospective clients and customers at a high-end event like that and that's why you got three of them it's no real big surprise that you know that that, you know they added miami and vegas because that's a pretty easy um that's a pretty easy one to do you know those are both pretty glamorous places to go what are your thoughts, John? And you'll get the final thought. Uh, it's a symbiotic relationship uh, for a lot of the reasons Dick pointed out. Also, countries uh, that are that have 
have uh, public relations problems like China, like Saudi Arabia and some of the, the Arabic countries, uh, they are using the sport to to bring the, the uh, world opinion up in that country on that country. And so it's a big deal. Uh, but it ultimately it's it's money and uh, logistics are the the two bigger things and then the secondary things are the political considerations. Hmm. Okay. Well, so this has got me thinking as always about more questions I want to ask you. I think what I would love to do is sit down and talk about each race, each circuit, actually, definitely the ones that exist, but also ones from the past. So let's plan for that to be a future conversation. Mm -hmm. We'll wrap up for today. I thank you so much for your time and I can't wait for our next conversation. That ends this conversation, but rest assured, we'll keep talking and you can keep listening in because we're just two guys, a girl, and F1. For John, Dick, and me, thanks for listening.